I want to continue from the last broadcast in which we hope to speak about eternal realities that do not fade away. And I want to talk to you about the spirit of adoption. To set this one up, I want to to pose a question. For many people, the question is, why has the church, particularly the the, uh, evangelical church, why has it embedded itself into politics? Why has it become an extension of a, in, in the United States of a political party? The answer is that it doesn't trust God. And in fact, I would go further and I would say, by and large, it doesn't understand the scriptures. It lives in that world of Bible verses. It it cites Bible verses as quote-unquote principles. And And it's done so, and it continues now to do so with a quickening pace, um, to cite Bible verses for social action, for what it wants to do. In that sense, it's really no different from quoting Shakespeare or Milton or quoting some current or past philosopher. It has become unconnected from the meaning of Scripture, from the truth. And so, and it, it's very much become part of that thing today that is referred to as the post-truth era. What's true about the post-truth era is that no one feels compelled to tell the whole truth. Everyone feels that it's their right to tell a partial truth if it advances their particular agendas. And society has adopted that principle, but it's been a long and clear development in the church, in church circles, where on one side, leaders of, of the more established church groups, the historic churches, kept things hidden. It's a way to commit a fraud upon people. When you keep things hidden that, if known, would require you to change, then it's the same as a lie. And the motivation is that you want to maintain the status quo. The problem with that, of course, is that it thinks that God doesn't know the difference between a lie and uh, and what is true. In fact, I would go further than that and I would say, there is no fear of God in that. There is no accountability beyond the order of the system itself. So finally, in that particular framework, society itself has brought judgment on the church. Society 
has, by the use of law, compelled a certain obedience, but now it's to criminal statutes. And that's because the actors within that framework, the framework of that church culture, refused consistently, not occasionally, not once in a while, not a few bad apples, but a whole rotten barrel. Because they refused to deal in the truth. So well before society adopted the thing called the post-truth era, the church was its most prolific practitioner of alternative truths. Over my years and experience in talking to pastors and church leaders, I will hear a variety, I've heard a variety of responses to things that I was saying based on the scripture, uh, things, responses I would get from these leaders. Some would just simply come out and say, I know what you're saying is true, but how would I feed my family? Because if I said what you say, they'd kick me out. The institution would kick me out. Others would just argue with me that it wasn't so. But when shown the silliness of their perspective, with just a little bit, scratching a little bit deeper than the the surface um, of their arguments, a sophomore could see that they were holding on to interpretations of Scripture that essentially you could have learned in Sunday school as as an adolescent. By and large, the understanding of most church leaders in the evangelical world has not changed since their Sunday school days. And they actually think that these are the timeless, eternal truths. How would you rate someone's ability to function in a complex society whose mental framework and whose body of knowledge hasn't changed since the eighth grade. Would you entrust them with the complexities of um, an economic system, uh, with the complexities of governance in in the political realm, with advancing societal thought? You would not. You wouldn't think to. I'll give you an example today of why the church has failed to grow up. An example of how a particular fashion which has failed to grow up in a basic understanding. Now when that has happened, the mature thoughts put forth in the scriptures are never part of their lexicon of thought or ideas. They simply choose not to know. A child is always concerned about his or her survival. A child doesn't see his or her place in society. A child doesn't understand his his or her responsibilities to the greater whole. So, 
so many of the leadership, so many of those who constitute the leadership of the evangelical world, have been in a state of arrested development scripturally. They simply don't know what the Bible is talking about. And so they have nothing to hold on to except the ebb and flow of the fortunes of a nation. And therefore, they have decided to throw their lot in with the political currents and the, and, and the parties of politics that more or less assure them of some levels of stability in an increasingly changing world. I think the Bible would refer to that as going down to Egypt to buy chariots and horses, rather than growing up to become more and more aware of who God is and therefore our identity in him. So I want to, I want to show you something here that illustrates this principle. I want to take this reading from the book of Ephesians chapter 1 at um, verse 5. And I want to speak about the word adoption. Adoption. That word in the Greek is the word huio, H-U-I-O, thesia, T-H-E-S-I-A, huiothesia. It's a word for adoption. Now, if you take a domestic understanding of the word adoption, meaning you don't know what the word means, but you infer its meaning from the present order of things. You would understand adoption to be something like a family taking in a child who did not have parents, or whose parents were either dead or judged to be unqualified to raise these children. And through a legal process, um, the family could take these children in, give them a home, give them a family, give them a name, and, uh, and take them in as part of the family. If you have this idea of adoption, you really haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what the scriptures mean with the word adoption. Because here is a conundrum. Are you born again or are you adopted? Because the scriptures use both terms to define our, our relationship to God. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus himself said, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And unless he's born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And the word for born there is a reference to being issued from the womb. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, It is said, the writer says, both the one who makes men holy, of course Christ, and the ones who are being made holy, that would be us, 
are of the same family, and Jesus is not ashamed to call us brethren or brothers. The word for brothers there is the word adelphos, A-D-E-L-P-H-O-S, adelphos. And it means to be of the same womb. In the story of John chapter 3 verse 5, Jesus was speaking to a very learned man, a member of the Sanhedrin council, whose name was Nicodemus. And when he said a man must be born again, Nicodemus understood birth in a in the ordinary way. And he said, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So what was his understanding of the word that Jesus was using? Issuing from the womb. The concept of a Delphos, coming from the womb. The word born means to be issued from the womb. But adoption is quite something else. So the question becomes, are we born again and therefore become the children of God, the sons of God, or are we adopted? Now whenever someone attempts to put you in this kind of odd place by citing two sets of scripture indicating two different things on the same subject and apparently in conflict, you never, you should never choose between the two. Even if you don't know what the answer is, it is always both. So are we born again or are we adopted? And the answer is yes. We are born again and we are adopted. Well, how is that? How is that? What is that about? What does it mean? Because they're not the same thing. Now, the scriptures use words to define different stages of sonship. So, as the book of Romans uh, the eighth chapter would tell us that when we're born again, we cry out, Father, Father. And that's a reference to how a child cries out when the, as a newborn. That's how you know it's a live birth. And in fact, if uh, it's the habit of, of uh, the attending um, medical personnel to to spank the child if, they aren't cry, if the child isn't crying out, to elicit this cry. So it's a reference to an absolute newborn baby taking its first breath and, uh, and crying out. That's the reference to being born. It, it relates to the term nepios which is that of being an infant. It's still a reference to a son, but it's an infant son. The word huyothesia, H-U-I-O, 
T-H-E-S-I-A, which refers to adoption, is a compound word. The first aspect of the compound is the term huyo from the word huyos, H-U-I-O-S. And that references a fully mature son. So much so that when Jesus, when God spoke out of heaven at the baptism of Jesus, in, say, the book of Matthew, chapter 3, when he said, this is my beloved son, he's not speaking of the, the same concept prophetically that referred to his birth that said in the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, unto us a child is born. A child is born to become the son who is given. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The son is different from the child. The word weos is different from the word napios because they refer to completely different stages of growth regarding the same person. Now that's not difficult to understand. We were all born as newborn infants. But as we grow up, we go through different stages of our growth. And as it relates to God, the different stages of our growth bring us into greater maturity for the purpose of handling the Lord's business in greater and greater ways. Now, you probably, most of you who are listening to this have probably never even heard of a distinction made in Scripture between the stages of sonship as they regard a child and a fully mature son. Because there is no theology. For the most part, there is no theology in any of Christian theology that tells you you need to grow up. That growing up is not some sort of fanciful notion. It is in fact what is required of you. Because the purpose for your being created is to carry the representation of God in the earth. That's not some made-up idea, that's central to your very being. And if there is not even a thought about your need to grow up, then the theology surrounding church and church ideas will never challenge you to grow up. In fact, they have, it has no capacity to instruct you in the greater things of God. If you never grow up, what will you be as long as you live? What will you be? You can only be a child. And a child can always be led by the child's emotions. The vast majority of people today in 
any form of Christian religion are children. They may be very competent and able uh, functionaries within society. They may be doctors, lawyers, engineers, business owners, and, and they understand that in these areas, they have to keep pace with the information. And they have to adapt their practices to reflect the new advances within their fields. More than that, they need to simply understand what's going on in society so that they're properly informed. This is true in every other sphere of society except the church. Except the church. I was having a conversation recently with a professor who told me, a professor at a Christian university, who told me that he on occasion has sat in on uh, discussions with people from the Bible faculty. And the the discussions are pretty astonishing. They will admit that their ministerial students are very troubled people. But you know, that's not a newsflash. That's not some new thing. The ministry has long attracted people who in normal circumstances would have a very difficult time functioning in the rest of society. And we could go down that trail, but I won't, I have a limited time left. That their ministerial students were severely broken people. And one of, one of these persons commented that the church is like a prostitute catering to its primary supporters, but remarked in passing, albeit a prostitute, it's still their mother, because they've spent so much time, committed so many of their mental and social resources to something that they no longer even believe in. That's why they have to go down to Egypt. That's why they have to go to the political process, because they don't know God. Huyathesia is a reference to the mature son whom God selects out of his family to position as his heir, which is to say, whatever God means to give to us, beyond sustaining us, beyond getting us good jobs, which is mostly what Christians ask for. They ask for a good job, they ask for good health, they ask God to help them with ideas and information about how to raise children, better opportunities. It's always about just surviving. The culture of the orphan dominates the church and dominates the relationship between Christ and the people. But God 
has an inheritance for us. The inheritance is this. We were put here to be clothed with an identity that is derived from God so that we could live in that identity and people could see God when they see us. Jesus put it this way, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father, because my Father and I are one. Before you could come to that place, like Jesus himself, he was born and 30 years after his birth, in his baptism, God says to the earth, to the world that was listening to him that day, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And he then in return, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my father. Why? Because I've come to show you the father. Absent the theology of representing God in the earth, we're reduced to scrappers and grabbers trying to get something enough hoarded so we could survive. And that's the, the preponderance of theology today in any expression of Christian religion is the theology of survival. It's all about survival. It's nothing about representation. And yet, Huiothesia, the mature son, is the one upon whose shoulders God places the mantle of representing God in the earth. If you never mature, if you never grow up, you can never represent God in the earth. It's that simple. Now, are you born again? Absolutely. That's how you get into the family. Are you adopted? Yes. But that means to be positioned as a mature son to represent the father. That's the meaning of the spirit of adoption. To be positioned to represent the father. And he is the one who positions you. So you must first be in the family before you could become the heir of the right to represent the father. As long as you're a child, you cannot do that. And you're reduced to merely surviving. And unfortunately, the culture of the church does nothing to remove you from that entrapment. I want to continue to bring you these truths from the scripture in the hope that in these difficult times you find a solid place on which to stand. I'm Sam Solon. I'll see you again. Bye-bye.